it was heartbreaking to see those vineyards go and knowing that maybe you're not having a chance. But I've always thought, you know, one day maybe I'm going to try and you know, buy at least some parcels of these grapes back and make my own wines. Hello and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. A quick note to say thank you to all of you for listening and for the messages of appreciation we have been receiving. I'm very glad that at least some of you are enjoying the podcasts. I didn't realize the amount of work I was getting myself into when I decided to release one episode a day while in lockdown, especially as many of them run close to an hour. But never mind, happy to do it for a short while. Uh, so thanks again. And do please share the podcast if you find it valuable. As mentioned, we're in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is at least for now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are relying on the internet to record these podcasts, and it doesn't always behave, so apologies for that. We have done what we can to make it as listenable as possible. Noah, Bernard's young son, makes a couple of unplanned appearances in today's episode. Today on the podcast, we have Bernard Bradell, winemaker and owner of Scions of Sinai. Uh, he made the first wines from the 2016 vintage and is based in southern Stellenbosch. The Bradells have been in the shadow of the Helderberg making wine for seven generations, and their port-style wines are legendary. Unfortunately, the farm was sold before Bernard had a chance to take over, and he went to work for the winery of Good Hope and also did stints in Cote and Priorat. The Signs of Sinai project was born from a desire to save some of the old vineyards that Bernard's grandfather had planted as they were being ripped up to be replaced with more commercially viable varieties. The Signs of Sinai is a tiny producer, but certainly one of the most interesting and compelling in Stellenbosch at the moment. Bernard is a massive vineyard geek, and he loves nothing more than being among the vines and showing visitors all the life in the soils of the land that he works with. He is hugely studious, both about the history of the area and different techniques in viticulture and vinification to, in his words, get the most out while putting the least in. I give you Bernard Bradell. I'm joined here by Bernard Bradell. Uh, hi, Bernard. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing well, mate. And you? Yeah, good, man. Good, good, good. Uh, Bernard, now you make some wines under the Signs of Sinai brand, and we're going to chat about your 2019 wines soon. But maybe just for those who don't know, fill us in about maybe the overview of your journey, a uh, quick journey in wine, um, how you got to having your own brand, um, and maybe a quick synopsis of Signs of Sinai as, a, as an entity. So I guess it's kind of a, <laughs> a more of a long-winded kind of background. Uh, but I'm going to give broad strokes. There's many fond memories uh, how I got into wine and how it came to be into Signs of Sinai in the end. But uh, yeah, starting off just of where my inspirations have come from, born in uh, on our farm, Heldersacht here in, in Somerset West. Uh, my family, the Bradell family, uh, used to farm here for about 160 years. Um, from starting on Klein Alderberg Farm, where my cellar is now situated on the foot of the Alderberg in 1850s. And yeah, so on my Bredell side, uh, so my my on my, my father's side, um, I've had this long line of uh, viticulture and wine just always been uh, a part of us. Growing up on the farm and in the vineyards with my grandfather and father in the cellar and also alongside my older brother. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, some of my earliest memories is just having sticky hands in the vineyards during harvest time or smelling the fermentations in the winery during during harvest and, and after school, you know, in the cellar. But then also on my mother's side, uh, my grandfather on that side, uh, also coming from a winemaking family. So he's been with Vintmill since the 60s until the late 90s. Uh, cellar master and maestro there. 
family has always been part of wine. Wine's always been a part of us. Uh, just a, a massive passion for how the the whole journey is put together from from soil to to wine in the end. It's always been one system for us. You know, the owner of the farm was the viticulturist farm manager, winemaker, all the way to the end. And that's that's where I was a part of. So I learned a lot through that and then went to university uh, after just already. Be, just sorry, sorry, but just before you start on university, maybe talk, I mean, yeah. Helderberg is obviously a hugely important part of what you do. Maybe talk yeah. about Helderberg, the place, um, and obviously it's, uh, its aspect, its soils. What, why, why is it so unique? Why do you reference it so much? Yeah, the unique thing for me about the Alberg, it's uh, the Alberg also has a kind of a diverse, I'm going to say, view around it because it has different aspects. You know, there's the west side to the north side, uh, up in the upper Blauwklippen Valley, then also has the front side facing Falls Bay, and then you also have the east side going into that Holland catchment area. And the swells are very diverse in that area. So the specific area where I am with signs of Sinai and the vineyards that I farm with is uh, area that I refer to as the, the lower Alderberg, which is facing to the south towards Falls Bay. So we're talking now about 12 kilometers south of Stellenbosch, the, the town, and that's uh, directly towards uh, Falls Bay, which is the South Atlantic Ocean. And the swell starts to become very different there in terms of losing its clay uh, duplex soils and starting to become much more uh, rather than just a granite clay mixture it becomes more decomposed granite into more silica fragment topsoil and, and quartz granules it's very well drained and poor as well so for me it's important then to, to have this difference of, of a lot of oxygen in the soil as well deep rooted old vines in that area and then Sinai Hill is, is a granite hill so it's uh, the mother rock and core of this hill is granite um, and this is uh, the closest hill that we have there to, to False Bay. It's about three and a half kilometers from the, the ocean shore. And then obviously the other important hills in Stellenbosch, which is just a few kilometers to its north again. Uh, you get Polkadry and then Butlaray and the Devon Valley area. Uh, this one is uh, just a little bit in front. So we're talking about the about the south side of the Mirlist area. So the back side of Mirlist facing towards Somerset West and, and the ocean. So, so these wells there, uh, all along the Modergaat Rivier, uh, that goes down to, you can call it Fir Grove. So it's uh, closer to the, the train station of Fir Grove, that area, and Winery Road, uh, for those who know the area in that sense. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a gray, uh, sandier swell, so it loses the kind of, uh, you know, deep red and yellow fertile clay structure that the uh, usual Stellenbosch soils have. And now we're going into a more leached out, poor, uh, well-drained soil type, which is kind of structureless. Uh, so it makes it a bit easier to farm with uh, vineyards in the sense of taking care of your soil. You can get uh, a material down into the soil, your plows around a bit easier. So, And also back in the day when this area was mostly developed in the early 20th century when phylloxera was still hit, it also helped to farm on the sandiest soils, uh, you know, to combat that. And people always planting uh, dry farmed as well, which is difficult in sand soils, but again, Adding manure and cover crops and growing them on sand soils is, is a bit easier in that sense and getting organic matter into the soil. I was going to ask you about water retention for those soils. Is it poor? I mean, do you have to really, is that one of the, the things you have to watch? Yeah, definitely water retention. But, you know, we're talking about a weed, so we're not growing a tropical plant. Mm. <laughs> in, in, in that sense, uh, farmers... Even then and, and, and now, we, we should realize that the vineyard is not supposed to, you know, 
always carry about 20 tons a hectare or 15 tons a hectare, it's kind of not really realistic. So you have to look at your soil type. My grandfather used to always just be be fine with having, you know, six to 10 tons of a hectare of bush vines dry farmed in that area. A lot of farmers, neighboring farmers would tell him, you're crazy, you know, you have to put in irrigation. And there's even articles in the 60s I still have where they were all, he was the only guy around that didn't have any irrigation in. He could have put it in, but uh, when they asked him why not, he just would have said, I can bump up his, his volume and production, but he's going to lose his integrity to actually produce some good fruit. And that was kind of for a guy who didn't have his own label, only supplied to KWV in those days. That was something quite special for me to know that he said it those days. And it's still something I practice today, not having irrigation there. He, he loved gardening and farming. So it's just a bit of effort in that sense. So he would plow close to the vine uh, a, a trench and, you know, fill it up with some of the cow manure that was on the farm uh, or even some of the leftover hay that was there. Uh, you know, everything that can help to get some organic matter in the subsoil that can actually help retain a bit of water. Mostly in the end, uh, trying to to guide the roots of the vines to go deep and, and, and not be shallow. So he knew, and uh, today I focus on that as well, that uh, the deep-rooted vines, which is now the older vineyards that he planted in the 70s, they're quite buffered now because on sand soils you have a better chance of these roots to really go down deep Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and the temperature is much more constant down there. Um, there is some moisture. There's a lot of water beneath the Somerset West area and, and, and Granite Hills. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, deep water tables there. So there is some moisture coming down in the deep subsoil. But I think if you're in the, in the, you know, the, the top one meter, that's your kind of problem area. Okay. So you just want to go through the first year or two uh, to educate these roots to, to go beneath that barrier and into the subsoil where there's some some moisture that's kept. Cover crops is very important on sand soils. I think without it, it's it's difficult to get soil retention, uh, uh, water retention then. So we'll continue with that. Sorry, I interrupted you. You about to talk about sort of post high school uh, into varsity. Sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, yeah, it's just um, uh, yeah, from then going into university, um, at that time there was already talk by my father that uh, our farm was going to get sold. So he was kind of uh, condemned, <laughs> condemned me to, you know, go into rather do engineering, civil engineering, and because uh, we're going to lose the farm and there's no real future in that. But after the first year, you know, I just uh, pulled out and said, you know, even I know that there's a chance that we're going to lose the farm in a few years' time. Um, I, I'll still want to do viticulture and analogy. It's my passion. It's my love. I've never known really anything else and uh, continued on it. And then shortly after university, I was still working with my brother for the last year on our farm at JP Bridell Wines. So he was then already finishing or finished with his studies and uh, trying to do the last run on the farm with my dad. And I joined them and it was kind of really the, the kind of end of JP Bridell Wines at that stage. And we're trying to innovate and going in a different direction. And uh, it's just short time and uh, eventually the farm got sold. I then got a, a job, can't really be pretentious in saying it's like a, a job job but I worked for another commercial winery in Stellenbosch for a few months over harvest and before harvest and post harvest operating their crush pad and just kind of a very big commercial winery you know learning all sorts of things about uh, adding about 75 types of additives before you even start to ferment the wine and then then also cross-flowing and filtering the things out that you've worked so hard for in the vineyards kind of really learned that that's not something I'm into and it didn't appeal to me in any sense because we, we never had a filter on the JP Bridal wines for almost a century <laughs> so I never grew up knowing that stuff 
uh, yeah, so I, did, I definitely learned what I would not like to do by working at that farm, uh, farm for, for a while. And then actually after that stint, I had applied for a job because I had a friend of mine who was my roommate at university also in onology, and then he went to go work in Australia. And I was on my way to go join him, also go work at the same winery he was at, applied for a job in McLaren Vale, was a winery called uh, Derenberg. One of the grand old names of uh, McLaren Vale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, at, at that stage, heard a lot about them, uh, and uh, my friend was also always talking fun about them. Yeah, I was excited to go there, but at the same time, there was a post opening ad- advertised online uh, for a junior winemaker and viticultural and cellar manager uh, in in Stellenbosch. You know, and I thought, okay, well, let's give it a shot. I'm fresh out of uni, just had one other stunt and on my way to Australia, but let's see where I get. I was a bit hopeless at this stage because the form was, you know, already gone. What year are we talking about now? So this is 2012, not too long ago. Hmm. So kind of confused at this stage, you know, where am I heading with with uh, the passion I have here? <laughs> this this winery in Stalinbosch phoned me, said I can come for an interview. Then I did a few interviews and met the winemaker and, and the winery. And uh, I, I immediately fell in love with the place and... A few weeks later, I, I got a phone call and said, you know, I got the job. And uh, it was the same day I had to confirm my flights to Australia. <laughs> I had to make the call. You know, they said I can start right away or either go to Australia. And I thought, well, this is in the Alderberg. It's in my valley. Um, I really love uh, the setting and uh, meeting the winemaker and the team there. I, you know, it's a great spot. And it felt more real for me and to something that I uh, wanted to get into. So that was the winery of Good Hope. Uh, so Radfordale, uh, the team of Alex Dale and Jacques de Clerc and um, French consultant there, Edouard Lafay. Yeah, just, uh, you know, for them working with natural wines at that stage, for me, I never knew really the term natural wine at, at that time. Um, I just always grew up with wine being a natural product, you know, from vineyards uh, to the fermentation into bottle, but sort of get more clear definition of it by them. You know, when I first told my grandfather about it, uh, you know, what the difference is. And he said, well, in the 60s, we just called it winemaking. It didn't add a term natural winemaking because they also couldn't add anything. And was that a concentration on um, organic vineyards there or is it more about what's in the cellar? Um, they, you know, there's a certain aspiration to, to work with organics in the vineyards, but, um, you know, it's... It, they're quite dynamic, uh, they're, they're cellar and set up. So, you know, they're, they're quite operating on a bigger scale of most uh, mid-sized wineries around here. Yeah. But, um, and, and so I work with about 49 vineyards um, uh, spread all out uh, the Cape, uh, managing all of them. You know, not every single farmer always gets and grasps the hardcore organic kind of ways that you want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but most of them did, and we had some influence, and that's where uh, we as a team had you know good feedback and communication. Uh, so we, we try a lot to to get into to that. Obviously, not with all of them, it's not as easy to be as hardcore organic, but at least you know get some cover crops in there and focusing on uh, different aspects. And um, I think from my side, uh, I really enjoyed bring, bringing some viticultural uh, background and input into into some of our vineyards there. So that was great for me to also have a little bit of the viticultural side and not just be another winemaker in the cog of a winery or the machine. Not just to be the guy who adds all the all the additives and just follows no, the recipe. No. Yeah. And then that's really not what that winery is about. And, um, you know, we, we, it's like a close-knit family. We're all part of something bigger, you know, in the end. And um, Now, Jacques is a great guy and they make some, um, some really lovely wines, don't they? 
Yeah, yeah. No, met him and you know instantly became friends as well. And yeah, so he was senior winemaker. Then you know I'm junior, so it was kind of like a Batman and Robin situation. <laughs> <laughs> Did you wear your underwear on the outside of your pants or <laughs> not always? <laughs> <laughs> That was 2013 that I started there then. Working with a guy like Alex, he's just an incredible guy. You know, his knowledge about wine is uh, impeccable. And uh, I just have huge amounts of respect for him. And he then in the end played a big part in developing how to almost guide my passion into finding the right kind of fit for what I'm into. You know, it really is farming with the soil and the vineyards and seeing how whatever you do in the vineyards can translate to something authentic and almost non-replicatable uh, in the bottle. And then also in the cellar, how we can can do as least as possible, but to get as most as possible out. Yeah, that, uh, so tasting a lot of wines through Alex, uh, he's also importing a lot of wines from overseas and being on his winemaking team, uh, Everything that gets imported, you know, we taste together in his office and uh, bring different kinds of wines, either Burgundy or from the Loire or uh, a lot of Beaujolais and uh, some New Zealand Aussie stuff. And we just love tasting this together with him. And I, I sort of saw my whole perspective and palate kind of grow and change in a way, gaining a lot of depth on tastes that I, that I really like in wine, almost, you know, the feel and philosophies behind wines that I really started to like. So that was a good uh, a time for me to, to be working with them. But I also have this this deep heritage in the area. You know, after or during uh, uh, One Year of Good Hope, I saw, you know, a lot of French producers coming in and hearing their stories. And then also I went to go do a stagiaireship with uh, Alan Grayo, uh, which is a yeah. friend of Alex. So I went to, that was 2015. So I was still employed by One Year of Good Hope. So I was in my leave time at the end of the year. So in September, taking leave to go work there for two months. Yeah, so that was in Cross Hermitage in the Rhone Valley. Uh, we did a lot of vignettes up and down the Rhone. Uh, San Josef and Cornas working with Maxime Grayo, Alan Grayo's son as well. Yeah. Um, and then at that stage, I'm already became friends with uh, guys like Luc Jamey from the main Jamey and Cadretti, and also Maxime Verzier from Main Verzier. His, his town is just a, a few kilometers south of Ampuy. I also went to go visit him and uh, Luc and, uh, you know, spend some time with him and his dad there and Cadretti in the vineyards. You know, seeing the whole farm and family set up, it just kind of reminded me of what something special we used to have and, uh, you know, our own heritage. And we, um, we kind of focus more on the, the feel and the philosophy behind winemaking in a, as a holistic system, focusing on heritage and what we, we've been knowing and, and doing for, for many years, but also progressing and changing. At that time, Luke is also taking over from his father and seeing how that also changes a little bit. Um, but anyway, yeah, then after that, uh, also did a, a stint in Bujolai, just had to go there. Um, Alex cracked my brain open with a bottle of John Foyard uh, Murgon Cotepi uh, in 2012. So it, it definitely changed some perspectives uh, towards red wine. And uh, yeah, I was very eager to go look and, and see what Bujolais is about. So there I worked for also the Grier family. Uh, so that is in a town called Boyer in the Macanese with a salary set up. Uh, we did Gamay there, uh, so that's only Gamay, small production facility, about 30 tons. We did from Santa Mor, Fleury, and, and some Bruy vineyards that we used to, to make uh, wines for, for them. So also working there with his winemaker, uh, Silva Martel, <laughs> he's a, a intrinsic character, <laughs> and uh, uh, we spent time <laughs> 
uh, uh, working a bit in the vineyards as well, you know, during harvest and, uh, you know, getting biodynamic preparations because he's full-blown biodynamic and uh, he's really, really eager and passionate about it. And, you know, we spent evenings uh, drinking a bottle of, ch- of uh, uh, chartreuse and uh, and just talking about uh, biodynamic philosophies. And then the next day we will go up into Cluny, which is uh, the kind of biodynamic area where they do all the, it's kind of seen as the, the home depot for biodynamic uh, in that area. Of course, uh, I think it's David Masson and Pierre Masson, uh, which is the con- considered kind of the big guys in biodynamic uh, agriculture at the moment uh, through France. And we go visit them and he'll, he'll show us, you know, how he does the preparations and why he does it. And, you know, learning a little bit behind that finer details of agriculture inspired me a lot, you know, thinking how someone is so thinking on the next level behind viticulture, even your swirls and going through different aspects there. Uh, once I adapted everything of it, but I would love to, you know, also focus on some finer details. You know, I just love working with Bujolet inspired me as i said you know getting into red wines with a different philosophy yeah and at that time when i got back 2016 our old farm i was driving past our old farm here in the Alberg, so i'm back in Stellenbosch now and uh, with wonder of good hope and um, starting to really see how the new owners of our old farm are starting to rip out all of these old vineyards my grandfather planted in the area uh, and, and starting to plant Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot. They were once thrived, you know, Portuguese varieties, Rhone varieties, and, and a lot of Shen, old vine Shannon. And I've always wanted to make wine from these vineyards you know, since I was a kid. I could remember my brother and I, we always play, you know, like one day we're going to do this and one day we're going to do that. You know, you, you have this inspiration for many years before this time in my life. It was heartbreaking to see those vineyards go and knowing that maybe you're not having a chance. But I've always thought, you know, one day maybe I'm going to try and you know, buy at least some parcels of these grapes back yes, um, and make my own wines. You know, going to France and seeing how they set up, you know, a few people own their own lands, you know, they're small negotiations in the end. Uh, it changed, just come back, so it changed your perspective. So I just come back to something that's old and that I'm used to, but just changing my perspective of our area and region, you know, saying, hang on, we have something special, you know. I'm, I'm really passionate about the swell type of ivy. It's quite unique. I'm really passionate about the vineyards we have here. It's the right varieties. It's chosen in the right climate. Uh, you know, they're standing on the right places. And the more I grow and learn that uh, what we had is quite special, the more I became eager to, you know, try and protect this uh, mm. in some way, someday. And I went to Alex in 2016, my, uh, my employer then, and I, you know, I asked him and I said, yes, they, they're really starting to rip out all of these vineyards. And I uh, know it's a difficult thing to ask you, but is there any way that I can at least get into some of these grapes before it's all gone, you know, to make some of it? You know, it was difficult, you know, not everyone has the opportunity to make their own wines while still being employed at the winery. So uh, well, we decided in the end what's best uh, because I'm really ambitious about what I want to do there with those vineyards. And obviously it's going to take some attention away from me working as well for the winery of Europe. So yeah, I took a bold step and uh, I resigned there. Love the people, miss them, you know, working alone today, you know, you still, still, still miss being part of a whole family and, uh, and being employed like that. Uh, but yeah, I had to, you know, set, set apart ways and, and, and start what then didn't have a name. It was just getting some of these old vineyards planted by my grandfather, decomposed granite swirls close to the ocean on this specific swirled up in area. Uh, and I want to really focus and hone in on it uh, on Sinail, uh, where our old farm used to be. And so I uh, quickly, you know, remembered 
five special vineyards here and I went to them and asked the new guys and also my cousin luckily still inherited the portion there and I got some vineyards there and said you know I'm gonna try and start up this thing it's gonna start very small seven barrels but uh, let me try and and demarcate half hectare portions in each of these five uh, special old wine vineyards and uh, and see if I can can get this going the same way as I would have seen how things is done in France. Yeah, so I bought the first grapes in 2017, first August, and then, you know, coined the name Signs of Sinai, um, <laughs> which is a quite literal uh, meaning towards uh, what it is. So, Sion in, uh, in English is, is the word so for in viticulture as well for the, uh, the top part of the vine above the swell. Uh, so, many fruit trees are grafted onto a rootstock, but the part actually bearing the fruit and life above the swell uh, is called the Sion. So, and then just uh, Sinai referring to Sinai. Yeah, then, then Signs of Sinai started and I'm, now I'm, uh, I was then on my own feet also didn't have a winery at, at that time so now you know you know you have this fruit in the bag but you have to make the wine somewhere yeah that, that helps doesn't it yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't just cement everything in my bucket <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that would have been uh, quite uh, <laughs> dramatic. But uh, at that time, I also have this close relationship with the Klein Karua, uh, like really close. Uh, I won't go too deep into the whole story because that's also a, sto- a long story. Uh, you know, how we ended up in the Klein Karua. My father, you know, lives there today. He sold the Bredal property. He moved uh, to the Klein Karua in Langeberg and he still lives there today. Uh, but he's yeah. had that property since 1995. Uh, we used to go there a lot since we were kids, like every second weekend, farm with cattle. Uh, we were raised like cowboys on that farm, basically. <laughs> and uh, everyone else, uh, you know, during school holidays are going to the beach and surfing. My brother and I, we were herding cattle and <laughs> helping to get them to the market and things. So a lot of that as well happening together with our wine farm here in Salambosch. So I, I grew also to love nature as my father does and uh, and really the outdoors and, uh, and and that area of the Klein Karoo. And knowing that he also wanted to plant vines there someday, you know, not a lot, maybe hectare too, and we'll experiment. For us, very passionate about wine. If you look at a certain terroir area, you always want to, you know, think about how does it taste? <laughs> and we thought, you know, let's go plant some vineyards there in the Klein Karoo in the mountains, virgin swells, and it's just, it's just, uh, it looks a lot like Cote Rote or Priorat up there. And uh, so in 2015, I actually helped him and I also planted some of my own vineyards there, the Grenache Blanc, Trigonache Malt and Tabaroka. And, and at the time, I thought, you know, I can maybe use a shed there by my father to make these wines, and also I can be closer to those young vineyards that I just planted at the time. Just a few kilometers down the road is a, uh, is a winery called Virgin Earth. Uh, that is the same owner from Havana Hills here in Atlantis back in the day. You know, he had this kind of special setup there, but I went to him and asked him, you know, can I buy some Verdello from him? Because I know there's some Verdello that he's also planted on that farm. And he said, yeah, well, you know, his, his winery has been unoperational for a year or two. Are you interested to use the winery? And I said, well, yeah, okay, then I'll kickstart this whole <laughs> winery up again. It's a 300 or 400 ton winery, so it can take quite a lot of grapes, uh, but he only has 22 hectares of vineyards. So he said, okay, you'll be control of all the vignettes uh, all the winemaking and everything is the key uh, see you in June <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I was uh, 
then it was more of a consultancy contract, so not uh, you know being a full-time employed, but uh, I took care of his farm and, and that seller. In the middle of nowhere, I'm 70 kilometers here away from anyone, <laughs> and uh, my wife and uh, dogs are back here in Somerset West, uh, and could see them only you know, every second weekend, maybe if I'm lucky or they'll come up to me when they have time. But yeah, so I really delved into, you know, understanding my passion of wine in a different perspective, kind of rock bottom, you know, in the middle of nowhere, uh, making a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, <laughs> which is a variety I'm not too too fond of, but we just uh, pull it through. Sometimes you don't always have the best choices. I had a winery where I can make my own wines uh, alongside about 150 tons of wines I made for Virgin Earth at the time. And also I paid uh, um, cash flow and, and getting startup costs going, you know, paying for the barrels and now paying for the grapes, keep, keeping you alive at this stage. You know, living costs certainly went uh, down uh, when you're starting your own business i'm sure there's many other independent guys that knows the same road a lot of canned foods uh, out there in the middle of nowhere a lot of just brine whatever you get but yeah it certainly was a journey so signs of sin i started actually up there in the clan Caro in that cellar and uh in that year in june july you know i sort of greet them i said there's all your wines it's in the tanks it's good and uh if you don't mind you know this is where we're gonna part probably our ways now and you know that was kind of the agreement in the beginning i'm never gonna be there long term you know made everything for him so yes his market he sells those wines into and i put all the barrels that I did for Signs of Sinning on the back of a truck and uh, drove back to the Elderberg. Just rented a bit of space in the barrel room here by my cousin in Fergrove. Those barrels just sat there for a while and I, I went to the foot of the Elderberg where a very old traditional Bredal farm used to used to be in the 1850s. New owners obviously today, it's the McNaught Davis family, lovely people. And uh, they also uh, know my family through the years a lot in the area. And I saw, you know, this old winery shed there. And I know from from a young boy that, you know, that was our old farm and that used to be an old winery. Of, and that's where the Bredell started. And I, I just took this bold step, you know, asked Rupert McMurdovich, which is the current owner of Klein Plus, you know, this old winemaking facility shed you have, yeah, you know, is it any use or is anyone using it? And he said, well, no, he's been waiting for 10 years for somebody to actually rent it. He's just waiting for the right person. You know, that was an amazing blessing at the time. So I said, well, if, if you don't mind, I take it foot to it as it is. And I'll revamp it, do all the licensing and paperwork. So a lot of red tape to have crossed uh, over a year and a half period but then finished up everything luckily just uh, in time for August 2018 so then I was in there already by by 2018 which was the first vintage then I did now my new winery which is now my independently owned piece of facility at the uh, at the foot of the Alleberg back where the Bredals once started and kind of just jointing the, the the loop from where it all started now to back where it's now and uh, you know the hairs on the back of my neck uh, stood up you know sometimes it's still the sitting in that winery knowing that I'm seventh generation the first generation guy Pietro Bredal that came here from Germany you know this was his wine winery and you know <laughs> you know who can almost uh, eerily feel his presence or something in, the, in some yeah, right. way and then the, the hair on the back of your neck stands up and just knowing that you're part of this thing that's almost just bigger than just wine um, the end for me is like what do you do when you really have this passion and ambition for winemaking since a young age uh, you really have a deep heritage that uh, I'm, I'm keen of protecting and you know keeping a legacy for my son and, and, and my descendants also going you know there's something special in that and then also uh, you know putting those two together this is sort of the 
road I chose. And, you know, taking baby steps, starting small, taking it uh, bit by bit, year by year. And uh, now in, currently in the fourth vintage, 2020, it's an amazingly fulfilling process uh, to, to have created this and was a dream since a young age and trying to just focus and work harder every day to, to make this thing really actually working um, is, is a big part of what I do. Yeah. Let's fast forward to the wines that we want to talk about, the 2019 wines. Numadis and Senior Talos, so those are uh, two blends. Uh, the one is a Senso Pinotage blend, and then uh, Senior Talos is a blend of Grenache Blanc and Chenin Blanc. And that's uh, inspiration for <laughs> that come from a different background, a little bit of working in Spain as well, uh, but also the Clan Carus uh, Terroir, and then also using some Chenin Blanc to bring some acidity. But yeah, essentially, Numadis is, is a light driven style of red wine, but uh, for me, you know. Light red wines doesn't always mean it has to be short on the palate or, you know, short-lived and, and, and just fruity and, you know, have an invigorating spike. It can also have some complexity, some depth. And uh, I, I like to use uh, two varieties in this area that I think really can can make light style of red wine. But also on the, the swirl type like sand swirls, which is a light texture swirl, I'd like it to, to, to just bring out actually what the swirls are like. So... I um, also refer to uh, those two wine or, or the models, you know, saying it's on light textured swirls and you can taste that on the palate as well. It's this, it's all about texture and flavor and having some length, but still in a light red wine style. You know, I, I, it comes out with 11.5% alcohol, but it's not that I'm, uh, I'm trying to, to be funky or funny about, uh, you know, the sugar levels. It's just I don't really care too much about uh, uh, the sugar levels uh, at that stage. Uh, of, of my ripening uh, vineyards in Sandswells, we don't have a lot of sugar accumulation. So uh, these vineyards naturally don't give uh, a high sugar level and it's more for me a focus on what the, the acid line is like, the natural acidity in the, in the grapes and also the flavor. Um, and when those are right, uh, you know, regardless of where the sugar is, I think it's a, just a good indication of the vintage in the end. You know, one vintage will have 11% alcohol, the next vintage 12%. Uh, even though it's harvested in the same spectrum of flavor and acidity. Uh, and it just speaks to the kind of sunlight exposure or, or uh, photosynthesis that happened during that vintage in, in that style. So Yana Mardis is capturing uh, then two varieties, Senso and Pinotage. 2019 is uh, a lot more Senso than Pinotage. There was, uh, my yield on Pinotage was very low, but I still like to use a little bit of Pinotage uh, with the Senso in it creates uh, another dimension on the back palate for me in that wine. And uh, it's just this lovely kind of uh, almost a goji berry flavor that the pinotage brings in with the Senso's uh, white peppery spice. Does the um, pinotage so, also add a bit of t- um, structure? Yeah, definitely some some structure uh, in the end. But, you know, the, the pinotage almost comes a little bit lighter um, than the Senso portion of Nomadis. The, the sensor portion is not uh, uh, you know, fully whole bunch fermented. It's uh, only about 50 to 60% whole bunch fermentation on the sensor part, uh, where the pinotage part is uh, 100% more of a carbonic fermentation part. But it's a very small portion that goes in there. Um, so that's only 5% uh, in, in 2019. Um, but so the sensor plays uh, for me in 2019 played a big role. I really like the... Uh, the character of Sensa in 2019, uh, there was uh, some depth and structure as well in there, so it's not necessary to have added so much pinotage uh, in, into that blend as well. Uh, yeah, so that's that's all about uh, focusing on, you know, almost looking at uh, a wine in a culinary aspect, you know, where's the, the bitterness, uh, the tannin, and uh, um, and the, uh, the structure coming from in the wine, 
uh, using those two varieties from these soil types to create something, you know, either using stems or skins or the leaves. So that's that's how Nomadis is kind of weaved together to be, both be a reflection of the terroir, but also a reflection of using uh, natural your raw materials in the winery to create a kind of culinary impression on the palate through a light red wine. Awesome. And uh, Senor Talos? Uh, Senor Talos, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot of feedback on the name. Uh, so it's just uh, uh, Senor Talos. Uh, I wanted to bring some Spanish uh, in there. Uh, I worked uh, over two vintages in Spain, uh, mainly around Priorat and Monsant region. Um, so that was 2016. And then also in 2018, I was back there again. I fell in love with Grenache Blanc. Uh, I really fell in love with some some skin time or skin contact uh, whites from the area as well. I just love the texture on some of these wines um, that 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 can come out uh, for for you know keeping it a bit on the skins and uh, and seeing how these wines can also just be naturally stable in the end. I thought you know I definitely want to try and do a skin macerated white. Uh, I uh, when I'm back in South Africa. And I'd like to use Grenache Blanc, and then also I like to use Shannon. Uh, I think the two complement each other well. Grenache Blanc usually have a low acidity, um, but and then the Shannon in the Alberg area definitely has a lower pH and some nice acidity. And then these both of these spend time on on the skins. Uh, it, it just creates a more uh, holistic blend in the end that's invigorating, and it's also. You know, a good thing to have a lower pH uh, in the skin macerated white uh, because it's more stable for the wines. So not trying to, to be too geeky about uh, chemical details or analysis of the wine. Uh, but I'm sure anyone tuning into a wine podcast is, <laughs> you're probably the, a wine. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the listeners can handle it, mate. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was that sort of, uh, was the choice um, influenced by your time in Spain? Because there yeah, is a lot definitely. of... Yeah, so definitely influenced by my time in Spain, uh, where I discovered uh, actually working with Grenache Blanc for the first time. Um, I worked in period with uh, Sylvia Puig, uh, in which is in the Purera area in Pabuleda. Yeah, she's just amazing uh, with Grenache Blanc uh, in that area. And then also, you know, guys like Terroir Limit Limit uh, uh, starting to understand and, and, and taste their wines. Uh, big inspiration, you know, getting behind uh, what Grenache Blanc can do. And, and also the kind of uh, uh, flavor profiles that can come from it. So, yeah, so that's where Grenache Blanc is used, but I do have a, a bit of a different twist on it. So uh, working with two terroirs, so that's uh, a decomposed granite, granite swirls for the Shannon, uh, and then the Grenache Blanc portion in the 2019 Senior Talos is from the Klein Karua. Uh, that's close to close to the, the rest Meirensport area. So that's just swirls. And just putting... Shannon Blanc uh, on the skins for about four weeks. And then I do the Grenache Blanc portion as a whole bunch fermentation. And that takes about usually between two weeks, just over two weeks. But the taste in the Shannon skins after four weeks, there's a lot of saltiness uh, still left in there. Uh, I love salinity in the wine. Uh, the skins are, are still good to use. You know, I put some of the Grenache Blanc onto some Shannon skins and then keep that for another week or two, depending, we'll taste that uh, during that last week and then decide, you know, is this long enough or not? Uh, you know, 20, 26 days or 28 days, <laughs> I also say that in the end. Then, um, yeah, then just press it, uh, age it separately, the Shannon and the Grenache Blanc portion, and then blend it together back after seven months, six months of aging. Are you aging uh, in just, just, just old 225s or what have you... 
Yeah, so in the winery, I, I, uh, with signs of Sinai, everything is uh, going to old wood. I don't have any new oak uh, in the winery that I use. So fourth full, full and, uh, and older barrels, mainly using two to five barrels. Uh, but there's also a range of 300 liter barrels and 400 liters, some larger formats. Okay. And then I, I, I split them, you know, for, for either other purpose up in the end. Yeah, so that's Nomadis and Senior Talos. So Senior Talos then being uh, a, a 60-40 split between Shannon and Grenache Blanc, just a very tasty, light, uh, skin macerated white wine, just aimed to be you know, quenching uh, at the same time, but also having complexity and length on the palate and uh, salinity and texture is just uh, what it's all about. And they're bottled the same year as Harvest? Yeah, they are, they are bottled the same year as Harvest, yeah. Well, they spend quite a lot of time on the lease, Making a wine like this, you have the, the flavor and development uh, at quite at a young age already, you know, uh, keeping it on the lees and also having that skin macerated portion of it, then uh, it's not uh, always a wine that you have to wait a year or two for, for you to start getting, you know, the flavors that you want in the end. It's kind of already in that wine. So it's kind of, it's lightly made as well, not over extracted. I don't do a punch down skin macerated wine. You also see my color is not, you know, as deep orange as most of them. And uh, it's just the leaching process during the fermentation instead of you know punch down and grinding grinding process yeah so you're, um, not, you're not trying so to extract I, color yeah yeah yeah. or, or yeah. extract too much of the texture it will come out sooner or later on its own yeah so that's bottled usually during september end of september and so then there's you've now got the peak of the the science of sinai repertoire is the single vineyard wines so you've got a new wine this year a, new, a couple of new wines i should say yeah yeah so there's two new wines joining the the single vineyard range and uh, that's uh, just site-specific single vineyard, uh, focusing on, um, on on more of these vineyards in the Alberg, but then also adding uh, one of my uh, one of the vineyards that I do in the Klein Karua, um as part of you know my roots, uh, which forms part of the narrative of my single vineyard range. But yeah, you know, for me. You know, natural, talking about natural wine, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. That's a whole different topic. But, uh, you know, it's not something that I always, it's not a term that's uh, so easily understood by a lot of people. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, skepticism about it. So I don't always like to refer to that term. For me, it's just working in, in winemaking in a much more mindful way of how to guide these vineyards as taste and what I've done to the soil and, uh, you know, in the vineyards and the site, you know, just guide whatever quirk or intrinsic character that there is from that vineyard or something special that I taste in the grapes or what I perhaps haven't seen in another vineyard. And just trying to guide whatever that taste is uh, all the way to the glass in the end or through the through to the aging um, without manipulating or, or trying to, to disturb that whole process, uh, you know, too much. It really only comes down to using four elements as the winemaking facilitator or guider in the end. And that's uh, just timing. So, you know, decisions of timing, you know, oxygen or reduction, temperature, if you can, you know, just use uh, harvest earlier in the morning or have a nice ambient salad temperature. And just, again, the time of decision making uh, or, or the time of your processes. So that's the only real four parameters that uh, you can focus on and trying to guide this. And you know, using your raw materials in different ratios or, you know, do I like the taste of the stems of this one or do I really like the, the flavor that the skins are giving this year? You know, am I going to keep it longer or shorter on the skins or even the leaves, you know? So using all of these is much more fulfilling than to go to your local uh, additive store and saying, you know, I want it to have extracting that, then let's add this or uh, I want to taste this, let's add that. So 
it's not fulfilling at all. So that's what Signs of Sinai and this range is about. It's just capturing that vineyard flavor uh, that from that specific site into these wines in this yep. range. Uh, and, and, and no, you know, nothing else added. So that's just uncut Pinotage. And there's a Syrah, uh, there's a Senso, there's a, a Grenache Blanc, and then also a Shannon. These five form part of, of that range. And then, then. Let's uh, start about... Uh, usually I pour the Grenache Blanc first, but I'll talk about him later because he's kind of uh, away in the Klein Karoo and it makes more sense to talk about him uh, apart from the Alderberg narrative. Okay. Uh, so... Yeah, definitely the Granitstien, which is my Chenin Blanc. Uh, that's an a, a old wine vineyard planted in 1978. Bush vines, dry farmed. Uh, good year, 1978. A very, very good year. <laughs> is that your year, mate? Yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's dry farmed since day one um, and then planted on contours on the front side of Sinai so yeah, just a small uh, confirmation about Senail. I think there's a lot of other names for it. Some people refer to it as Fora or Firgrove area. Fora is mainly on the, the north uh, and west side of the hill where the front side always just known as Senail. And then and then it's more facing towards Firgrove for those that know the area. Up on the uh, on the front side of the hill, so facing southeast towards False Bay and the Ototoxoland Mountains. So we get a good, uh, nice uh, morning sun rays hitting the, the vines there instead of afternoon sun and then also facing the ocean a lot of uh, uh, um, so that's three and a half kilometers from the ocean so a lot of wind uh, picking up uh, during the ripening time from from the ocean you know cooling down uh, the inland you know good ripening conditions for retaining acidity and i for for me again as i said before that acidity plays a big role rather than uh, you know, ripeness uh, or extreme overripeness or and, and sugar levels. So it's much more about acidity and the flavors of the skin. And this Shannon just have this amazing saline character in the skin already um, in, in the primary fruit that it is. And uh, that's something I'd like to try and, and take out from the vineyard. Harvest it, uh, you know, these, uh, that Shannon vineyard quite, uh, gets quite, uh, you know, gaining sugar quite quickly. Uh, so by the time the acidity is, you know, in the right profile, you know, you still, still end up with a wine of about 13% alcohol. So it's not about harvesting earlier. It's just getting the acidity and flavor right. So we're still ending up, up about 13% alcohol. You've been leasing this vineyard. Is that the uh, the agreement in terms of you farm it? And uh, you obviously don't own the vineyard. Are no, you... I don't own the vineyard. So um, so it's basically like a negotiation basis, but you take from the a set portion and demarcated area every year. But then I also... Um, have additional uh, personal inputs into farming the swirls in my manner and, and also uh, to some extent the viticultural inputs. So I'll, uh, in my sections that I have there, you know, we don't use any systemic uh, systemic intervenients, no, no, no roundup and, uh, and any weed killers for that uh, stakes and, uh, and stuff that can really get salt into the, into the vine. Uh, and then also do cover crops in, in my own ways there. So yeah, so that that that's uh, the basis that I work with. So okay. that's my own expense in the end. So that's not on the farmer's expense. So there's yes. a base rate I pay the farmer for the grapes, uh, but anything else, uh, as long as it doesn't impede on his time, I do it as far as I can myself and pay for everything uh, as far as I can myself as well. So that definitely okay. adds some some extra money on top of the the price per ton in the end. I think it's so important for people to understand value. what goes in. Yes, exactly. You know, so, you're not sitting yeah. back and just work letting letting the farm do all the work and then you just get grapes the first week of February and then away you go. 
Oh, no, man. I think if I wanted to, to live or do that way, then I'll probably still be a winemaker somewhere for another winery. <laughs> you know, I'm doing what I do to, to be part of the holistic process, uh, you know, from 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 soil to, to glass. And uh, um, and that's that's uh, what Science of Sinai is about. Yeah, that's so uh, Kranitsky. And just getting back to that uh, in the end, uh, as I said, yeah, the skins, that salinity for me is, is very special. So, I try to, when I get it into the winery, so everything is harvested in lug boxes. I do a little bit of skin skin time on, on the Shannon. So I then refer to that as a skin contact or skin macerated wine because that means it fermented on the skins. With this Shannon, I just leach out a little bit of the, the terroir in the skins and that salinity by keeping it uh, before fermentation for a few days. Um, Are you destemming before that or is that? Yeah, yeah, destemming, mate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so I destem the, the, the Shannon. Um, you know, just uh, I mean, trying to work with uh, carbonic shannon at that stage and to later press it when it just started to ferment. Uh, it's 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 a recipe for mess. Um, and I feel <laughs> you, sound, you sound like you've got the voice of experience there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Pressing anything that halfway with fermentation is a bit of a mess. Uh, but uh, but yeah, also you know, of course, I want to leach out. Uh, um, what whatever is in the skin when you do a whole bunch uh, you only get what's in the skin much later on you know this uh, this is some of the constituents and flavors that i like in the skins you know i de stem uh, let it um, sit in the juice uh, you know and and just leach out over a few days uh, before before i then press it you know just press before it starts to ferment otherwise as i said it's quite a mess and that ferments in barrel and uh, ages in barrel so that's split over you know larger format 400 liter barrels and 225 and then lease is very important. Stays on the lease uh, right to the end um, and bottled, unfiltered, and fine. So uh, you just really get this clean and pure character from it. Cool, man. And what sort of sulfurs are you, are you using? Just doing it post no, malolactic or? Yeah, no, um, the Shannon doesn't go through malolactic. So okay. uh, that's, a, that's another quite special thing for me about this. Having a, a rather low pH, we're sitting around 3.2, almost 3.3. Malolactic fermentation usually is is not kicking in in this wine. I don't stir the lease. I don't try to stir the lease too much. Uh, that's uh, throughout the aging, so um, it's not kicking up those bacteria. And you know, ever looking under this wine under the microscope, it's quite clean and pure. And uh, even with those sulfur levels, it's not going anywhere. Uh, it just stays put. Uh, you know, so this Shannon, low sulfur levels, probably around 50 total, or even a little bit less. You know, working with low pHs. That's another thing. Uh, you know, focusing as a making wines in a more natural approach is pH is a, plays a big role because that also refers to the stability of the wine and you can use less sulfur and um, and can get away with it because your wine's naturally protected and stable at a lower pH level so uh, that's also why I like to, to take some of these varieties uh, and then also on sand swells helps to, to get these lower pH levels so um, yeah then sulfur uh, it depends uh, of the vintage 2019 probably didn't have a little bit with fermentation uh, but uh, um, had some uh, just, uh, you know, uh, maybe about three weeks before bottling around there uh, oh. when the blend was made up, uh, but just a, a, a dab in there. Um, and yeah, there were, probably was a little bit with, with the fermentation in the beginning, but uh, in the end, you know, the, the total sulfurs are quite low. So that's, that's I'm not trying to use sulfur as, as a rule everywhere. So it's kind of, well, I feel it's worth and using it as a tool rather as a rule. Um, it uh, it's kind of useful, um, but uh, not in all the wines that I disregard it totally. Mm-hmm. Some of the wines can handle, you know, to go without any of it. 
um, but the others, I feel it's better better to protect it. You know, me yep. doing hand bottling, I, I'm not at the kind of scales to machine line bottling where everything is protected. Doing hand bottling at the end of the year, uh, there's a lot of oxygen involved and exposure yes. uh, quite rapidly. So I think uh, my sulfur additions are mostly kind of focused towards just absorbing a little bit of that exposure, um, you know, with the hand bottling process rather than it is to, you know, destroy the wine in the end. Well, it's going to be interesting yeah. to see if you get up to a scale where uh, you are on a bottling line, if your sulfur levels as a response to that, or you'll, you'll feel, you'll, you'll, you'll see that. Yeah, it'll be interesting I'm to sure, see. I'm sure it could. I'm sure it could. So, mm. um, yeah, it won't, uh, won't be as necessary by that stage. The the since and the new Sinso next? Yeah, so I uh, have a new single vineyard so it's also an older vine, uh, vineyard it's not a registered old vine vineyard mm-hmm. uh, so it's planted in 1988 so not that old they look much older than they are uh, those those vines are uh, also on Sinai Hill right next to the Chenin Blanc on the same kind of soil type so that's decomposed granite topsoil but there is a little portion of uh, a clay in the subsoil in, in that area but not as much and and then some coffee stone uh, uh, um, like an iron ferricrete uh, layer in there as well. So this is the same farm? So this is the same farm, same hill. Um, mm-hmm. So a farm called Ristanov uh, there in Fairgrove. Um, but by your also, cousin or owned by your cousin? Yes, owned by my cousin, Peter Brudel. Uh, mm-hmm. He took over from his dad in 2016. His father was Anton Brudel. Uh, and he manages and goes on with that farm today. Really busy guy, incredible guy as well, uh, focusing on his own winemaking as well at that stack on, on that farm, but uh, not using as much of the fruit on the farm, you know, for, for his own purposes uh, on his markets that he works for. So we are quite a, a lot of guys buying into these old vineyards on that farm uh, and having our own portions. So we a nice collection of other independent winemakers that focus on, on this hill in, in some way or another. Yeah, because I mean, I know the Cravens also get this and so from, from Mr. Yes. Ruff, don't they? Yeah, so Cra- Craven and um, so Mick and Janine is there. So it's, uh, you know, always uh, good to see Janine in the vineyards there and, and catch up. And then, yeah, uh, Mick, Mick doesn't go in the vineyards, does he? <laughs> Mick just stays Sometimes, in the water. But yeah. mostly it's Janine. <laughs> just to take photos. <laughs> <laughs> On weekends. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, but yeah, then there's also guys like uh, Chris Allight there, um, mm-hmm. uh, Adam Mason is there, uh, some of his raised by wool stuff, uh, I believe. And that's, then, probably, that's probably why Mick's in the winery, because Adam's out um, looking at his sensor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, then Jocelyn is there uh, from Hogan, uh, mm-hmm. she, she takes a bit there, and Lucas is also there, Lucas from Wolfenberg. Yeah, and then a, a few other wineries like Kleiner Salze and Morgenzon. Carl Shields, Etienne Lerich, uh, who else? Bits and portions goes to DGB as well. Still from that vineyards, they do a few special lines with, with some of these vines. So it's not all independent small producers, but we are quite a, quite a bit in there. Metzer, Wade is in there as well. It will grow maybe a little bit here and there, but uh, not too many. Peter is not too fond of having too many small negotiation buyers in there. That, <laughs> that already seems like it. quite a few. Yeah, exactly. So for all farmers, it's not always about price. So it's also about uh, the ease and uh, efficiency. So And the, re- <laughs> the, and the relationship as well, yeah. Definitely, uh, the relationship is extremely important. Uh, you know, that goes a, a much longer way, you know, than just to bluff about pricing. I digress. So, Sinso. Uh, Sinso, um, so that's a, a vineyard that I call Haldervallei. So, this is uh, next to the Granitstein on decomposed granite swirls, planted in 1988. 
lovely old dry farm bush vines. Uh, they bear about 1.9 kilograms per vine, so it's 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 quite it's not as much about five to six tons a hectare, maybe in a good year a little bit more. Um, love the concentration; it it creates a bit smaller berries for me than than your usual sensos. Uh, also, just have this unique primary uh, fruit and 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 tight. Uh, uh, focus on the palate that comes with the granite swirls uh, and also that proximity to the ocean. It's definitely exposed to the, the ocean winds that, that come in through the ripening period uh, quite a lot. For me, that helps to retain some of the acidity and also helps with flavor development quite a lot. Yeah, just a, a lighter style red wine, but with uh, um, length and, and complexity from, from the terroir. Yeah, nice one. And so were you getting the fruit before t- um, 2019? Um, 2018, I was already getting some of that vineyard on an experimental base. Okay. Um, and then uh, it, a lot of most of that then went into the Numardis that stage, as I didn't have. Uh, so Numardis is a different sensor vineyard. Yes. Uh, so so that portion then went into Numardis. It probably made out about the 20% portion of the 2018 Numardis. Uh, so you, you, saw, you obviously liked what you saw in that in that experimental portion. Yes, definitely. Uh, a different character than the Numardis vineyard, uh, which I call Fis Arendt, and that is uh, uh, situated more down below uh, next to the riverbank uh, on sandier soils. Um, and then, yeah, I saw the difference in it. Obviously, don't want to create the range where I have 20 wines, but at least I'd like to add another sensor. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you say that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, in the next breath you go, quickly. but I'm thinking about adding. <laughs> That's difficult, you know. When you see something special and taste something unique in a different vineyard, you go like, you really want to put it in its own bottle. And, you know, not always you can, but for me, I felt, you know, I can definitely add this. And so it forms part of what I'm about and uh, also planted by my grandfather, you know, as all the others. And um, since I was one of the original varieties in that area, wasn't it? I mean, it was yes, sort of Colomba, uh, Claret, I guess. Yeah, there was a lot of Palomino, Palomino um, okay. Claret, um, and and Senso back in the day there, but uh, this area mainly thrived with Portuguese varieties like Tinta Barroca and Suzo and Rio Nacional. Mm. Uh, definitely a lot of Senso, later on some Syrah, but even interesting so is that my grandfather used to get better prices for his dry red Tinta Barroca at KWV. Uh, the port that they made for KWV would mainly be made from Senso back in the 60s and 70s. Oh, really? <laughs> And uh, and they would add uh, a touch of Suzo with it to, to okay. bump up the color. Right, just to, yeah, yeah, make it yeah. Um, really interesting. So that was 60s, 70s. If you get some some old KWV tawny ports on uh, your hands on today, you know that's mm. that's probably Senso and Suzo that was. Okay. In there. Um, there and then go. later on, the prices were better for for Tinta Barocca and these guys. Yeah, so a lot of Senso was planted for port purposes, but also mm-hmm. a lot of the dry red Senso from the area went into. Uh, there were the barracks of the 80s and the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, right. we, were, we were probably one of the biggest suppliers for, for KWV at that stage from, from the Stellenbosch area on the side. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, my grandfather uh, had a lot of uh, a dry sensor that, that uh, also went for, for, for those blends. And in the cellar, how are you, what are you doing with, um, with your held fillet? So the elder fillet uh, in the cellar is about uh, 70% old bunch. You know, I don't try to, it's not uh, semi-carbonic or anything like that. So just take uh, take it easy. It's not always as a rule, you know, just to use whole bunch or, or D-stem, you know, for, for this or that. But 
for me, I think, again, a focus is, is trying to prolong the time of fermentation as, as much as possible. Uh, fermentation time correlates to a kind of uh, taste length on the palate. And if you can extend that as much as possible um, in a natural way, um, I think uh, there's always some reward in it. Uh, so using a little bit of whole bunch in there, I feel delays the fermentation process a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it, uh, it adds texture. Uh, I love the, the, the taste of, uh, of the stems as well. So and don't try to really crush the stems. So it's not really leaching a lot of potassium out that's going to drop the acid. Uh, I think there's more potassium leaching out of the, the actual skins uh, if it's everything crushed. Yeah, so in the end, uh, having some stems together, so it's not the semi-carbonic fermentation, so it's stems but crushed uh, or, uh, you know, I stomp it by foot. So it's just a, a, a kind of squeezed berries but still intact with their stems and then a 30% portion, which is destemmed uh, in the end. And this also goes through fermentation uh, very quietly on its own. I have a nice ambient salad temperature uh, in, my, in my winery, old building thick walls, um, so uh, mm. it doesn't really spike too much. Uh, it is one of one of the warmest fermenters. Uh, this the sensor patch. Uh, it goes up to about 26, but not really, you know, further than 26 degrees Celsius. But but usually around 22, and then it just takes about uh, two weeks to finish. Uh, so nice and easy. I don't press too hard. I have a basket press and I manage myself. You know, and then uh, <laughs> uh, you can only eat that much biltong to try and uh, build muscle to squeeze as hard as you can. But my <laughs> retrieval rates <laughs> usually aren't that, that big. So, yeah, right. so, so definitely not pressing too hard. And uh, I take that uh, loss of, uh, you know, retrieval rate on the chin um, and just have a more kind of a, a bigger portion of free run and just this finely slow pressed uh, portion uh, that comes from from the basket press. A lot of the guys are, um, uh, and girls are uh, releasing their 19s sort of around now and when this, the, um, the the topic of 2019 and Sinso comes up, they all sort of like, oh, you know, it seemed like it was pretty universally a, a really difficult year for Sinso in 2019, not just in Stellenbosch but also in up in the north as well in the Swatland. But you seem to have, I mean, I've tasted yeah. your wine and, and it, it seemed to work with i mean do you, do you have the same opinion or are you no i think uh, where i'm situated uh, we have quite uh, stable and uh, conditions uh, not as much as as inland areas um mm. you know with, with uh, three and a half kilometers from the ocean and we we're not a very we have trout here but our old bush vines the roots go deep um uh, we have about still about 500 millimeters of rain during the the, the drought uh, now in the past year uh, over the past few years. So <laughs> these vines are quite buffered against, you know, fluctuations in vintage. Uh, there's minor uh, uh, fluctuations, you know, either with the pH going a little bit up or down. Um, I feel it more in 2020 where the, the pH uh, was a little bit higher than than in 2019. Okay. Uh, for me, it was a good sensor year. I really okay. uh, enjoyed the, the sensors from 2019. Uh, nice flavor. Uh, not too much color, uh, but the flavors uh, was again great and actually held up some decent acidity. You know, not heaps of it. It's senso. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> and uh, yeah, senso is not you know too much about acidity. It's it's more of a kind of texture, a little bit of bitterness and and length in lightness. Yeah, crunch and burst and and, and perfume. And there's a, yeah, there's, a so. there's a real perfume to um, your senso. It's uh, it's quite haunting. 
Oh, thank you. I think yeah. uh, that's something that uh, I enjoy in the wine. You know, it's like kind of a rosy perfume. There's some citrus peel. Um, really like what comes out from, from, from that block. Should we talk about the Syrah or the Pinotage next? Uh, we can do the Pinotage. Yeah, so uh, Phoenix, uh, then the third uh, single vineyard wine, uh, that's uh, Pinotage vineyard. And then also for me, uh, just a little bit of background behind Pinotage. I'm not, uh, you know, the, the world's greatest Pinotage fan. <laughs> Working in Beaujolais um, really opened up my eyes, you know, to uh, how how you can uh, change your perspective on on a red wine in the end. And uh, I really thought it was a crack um, to to look at these old Pinotage wines because it was different from the start. Even the grapes I've known more than the wines that have come out of that vineyard. Um, and I've always known that the grapes are vastly different on our old farm from, from that block. So we again now at the Fergrove side, bottom slope of Sinai Hill. And this is a pinotage that's really planted on, on one of the sandiest patches there. So if I refer to sand also in this area, um, I've had some people not really understanding it, but uh, sand is just a reference for me to the texture of the soil. So I'm not talking about, you know, decomposed uh, seashells here. I'm talking about just extremely decomposed granite and structuralist soil. Uh, that's that's where my referral to sand comes in. Um, so there's a lot of silica and quartz in the top soils. Most pinotages of Africa was was thought to be planted on, you know, heavy soils and, and trying to stretch its ripening uh, because it has quite a thick skin and you have to get uh, the ripening, you know, only later in Feb. But this this vineyard was planted on on a light textured sand soil close to the ocean and uh, um, old vines planted 1976. You know, for for me on sand soils, it it uh, ripens the skins a bit earlier. So er, the, the flavor development and ripening happens earlier. And even though you have that on sand soils, that uh, many people will think that your sugar also spikes and jumps up. You're going to have a very ripe wine, but that, you know that's only true if you have a lot of leaves. And working with an old vine on poor soils, you don't have a lot of leaves, so your sugar is not really going anywhere uh, or running away. But you still get that nice development of flavor earlier in the skins, and for me, that's a great thing for Pinotage uh, because it can have a kind of an awkward uh, uh, um, expression of green character if it's underripe on clay soils. Uh, I like to always be in the spectrum where the acidity, the natural acidity is still there along with the flavor. And by that time, the, the sugar levels are still quite low, but the flavors are there. Just lovely characters that's quite unique and stand out uh, quite differently than, than most pinotages, uh, you know, that I've, I've had from South Africa. And uh, that inspired me to continue with it and focus on this block as a single vineyard. That's how Phoenix was born. I mean, what sort of quantities um, are you making of these wines? I'd like to, you know, I started off small with seven barrels in 2017 in, in total. And now today I'm up to about 30, 33 barrels. Jamin, you're, you're, you're massive now, huh? <laughs> you know, it's a slow, slow step. Uh, you know, we can only uh, work as much as our cash flow can handle the next year. Yes, uh, I get so, it, <laughs> for sure. I, you know, obviously, I, I, if, if there was time to, make all, all <laughs> to, 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 to buy more grapes, you probably would have, but uh, you can only do baby steps and focus on, on the next move. But uh, I've started with all of these vineyards, half a hectare portions, you know, first. So <laughs> investing in getting these half hectares, even paying for the farming inputs into half a hectare, even I only then harvested from the first vintage, you know, in this vineyard, maybe one ton and that vineyard one and a half ton. So they can easily carry about two and a half to three tons in that half hectare portions. Um, so I would like to grow into that uh, over a period of time. 
uh, and try to, to produce uh, at least 1,000 bottles of each of these single vineyards, uh, 1,000 to 1,200 uh, um, of, of, you know, Phoenix, Franitsdian, Alderfly, Gramadulas, and uh, Swanesan. But not all of them are there yet. Um, so some of them are obviously a little bit more, the others are not as much yet. At the moment, Granitian is about 1,040 bottles. Uh, Phoenix, uh, what we're talking about now, is about uh, um, just uh, shy of 900 bottles. Then Alderfalai, you know, starting off made in vintage 2019, is only just over 500 bottles. Uh, yeah, so, and then the others is around 1,200 or 600 bottles. And, uh, yeah, so just north of Fakor. <laughs> yeah, Which well, I try to still spread them far and wide. Uh, yes. Um, and a, and a little can go for way. It's really about uh, um, growing bit by bit and just uh, taking baby steps. You know, we make the most of it uh, at, at this stage as well. Uh, Nomadis, I do a bit more. So that's about just shy of 3,000 bottles. Then, then there's two other wines, the Senor Talos, um, which I do about uh, 900 or 800 bottles of. And then uh, Atlanticas, which is a different production, a bit, a bit bigger on, on about 3,200 models. Um, for and me, they're just big. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah that's, that's the cash cow, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> I think my, my total now in 2020 you know, is, is going around 14,000 bottles. 14,000 bottles, yeah. Cool. Um, and the Syrah, the Swansong. Yeah, so Syrah Swanesang, uh, another uh, Bushwein vineyard uh, in the Lower Alderberg. Uh, it's not on Rustenhof, so it's about a kilometer east, uh, but also close in the Fergro vicinity. Decomposed granite swirls again, uh, uh, also focusing on the same kind of swirls uh, type there. Uh, Bush vines dry farmed, also planted by my grandfather, this one bit younger, uh, 1996. Um, and yeah, just... Uh, it's a rare thing to still find uh, bushvine syrah in, in the Alleberg. Um, and I like the, the idea of having the bunches a little bit closer to the silica of the soil. And uh, I find it really creating a kind of a primary uh, cultivar character standing out in the, in the wines in the end if our bunches are hanging a little bit lower towards the soil. Uh, that's why I like bush vines as well. So uh, I think if I can, you know, look at the records, I'm pretty sure this is the only uh, bush vine syrah vineyard left in the Alderberg. Uh, it's about a one hectare patch kind of tucked away the, between Winery Road and Bredell Road. Yeah, this farm is called Sierlich, uh, and uh, that refers to the ocean again. You know, from this farm, you can again see the ocean, see the waves, a lot of uh, air draft summertime again from the ocean through this vineyard. Helps with uh, acid uh, reten uh, acidity retention, and uh, I, I find a finer flavor development. And then it's two clones uh, in one block planted together. Uh, majority of it is the, 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 the SH99 clone, uh, mm -hmm. which is quite scarce still today in South Africa. It's a variety uh, of clone my, my grandfather and father used to love working with as well. Um, and then there's a bit of 9C, uh, the clone 9C in there, um, uh, which is usually more focused on a primary expression, but I like the tightness and also keeps quite a, a good acidity uh, in the end, uh, which is quite invigorating. Cool. And then, what do you, what do, you, how do, you, how are you treating the, um, the fruit in the cellar? Yeah. So coming from a winery in, uh, in Cross Hermitage like Alan Gray, you know, the guy uh, inspired me really with a lot of syrup. But uh, uh, we don't have the same vineyards and terroir, so you can't really always say, you know, you're going to have the same wines. It's not that I'm trying or to, you know, copy and paste anything from there. So trying to really find my own footprint with this syrup and this vineyard. 
but there still is this perspective of using stems that I love uh, love to do in in the winery with with the syrup. So also tasting the stems uh, before harvest, you know, just actually uh, uh, getting to see what that uh, texture and, and taste is like, and then decide on the ratios on the day of harvest. I think if I remember now correctly, in 2019 it could have been probably about a 50% portion of of whole bunch. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, not semi-carbonic or carbonically whole bunch. Uh, this is uh, you know. Uh, um, squeezed whole bunch so the berries are crushed but still on the stems so you put the, but do, you, do you put the whole bunch in a fermenter and then just get in there and, and um, step on or does it, does it go through I'll, a crusher uh, some portions I'll actually then yeah, um, use use my feet to uh, uh, step on them you know release some of the juice at the bottom of the tank to get some of the the, um, the natural fermentation going quite easily and then there's also a portion then on top of it that uh, I'll use the distemmer, but uh, you just take out the, the, the drum of the distemmer that actually <laughs> distems and only use the rollers that finally squeezes the grapes. So yeah, um, so you can only foot stomp a tank until your uh, hip uh, hips are inside the wine. So yes, <laughs> yes, the, yes. the rest you have to put on top. So I'll, I'll stomp until, you know, I'm... I'm um, you know, kind of drenched in in the juice, and then when it gets uncomfortable, not really the stomping is effective. Then you'll use a, a, a destemmer without the destemmer, if that makes sense. No, I understand. And then yeah, just uh, the fermentation again, long and slow. Uh, I don't do any punch downs. Okay. Uh, this uh, is just uh, all uh, keeping keeping the cap slightly submerged as well during the fermentation by having some whole bunches at the top of the, uh, like un- unstomped uh, whole bunches that I put on the top of the skins. Uh, so that kind of puts weight uh, on top of the, the, the skins that want to rise through the fermentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but by doing this, you have this natural way of keeping the cap submerged without doing a punch down. So it's kind of a permanent punch down that happens on its own. Okay. Uh, and uh, um, it, it, it controls a little bit of the fermentation time to be longer, as well as just uh, slowly extracting. And that slow extraction, again, adding, uh, for me, a deeper kind of length and, uh, and taste to the palate. Uh, and just bringing out that terroir a little bit more finer with finesse and elegance. And VA isn't an issue with those whole bunches on the top of, of the cap? I mean, what's the... No, not... Uh, you know, I still keep it healthy. So mm-hmm. um, I really have a quite a, a meticulous <laughs> hand at uh, being clean in the cellar. Um, it's, it's annoying for myself sometimes how, how much <laughs> I work with cleanliness. I, I do I use a little bit of dry ice in the beginning to keep some gas before the fermentation. But once it starts to ferment, there is some gas, and uh, you know it keeps the VA at bay. Okay. Um, and, and just keep the, the tank closed at the top and make sure there's not really any machis coming in. Yes. Uh, but importantly, is uh, you know you, you really only get VA when the lactic acid bacteria is chewing on sugar and there's oxygen present. So once you know that. Uh, you kind of try to eliminate them uh, as easy as possible. And that's by uh, just taking a bucket or two from the bottom of the tank and make sure you sprinkle everywhere on the top of the whole bunches and yeah. uh, just, just destroying those colonies that wants to grow. Yep. Uh, but so just, keeping it, just keeping it wet virtually. Yeah, so yep. I don't really have any problems with you at all. You know, if you just take a keen mind of smelling every day, picking up bunches, smelling. And if you do find on the top of those bunches, now maybe there's one that, as a funky uh, a stench to it, then you know, don't press it. Uh, then, then put it with the rest of it. You just, just keep get, it off. Just get it out. Chuck there. it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. need that. And take it on the chin if it's not part of it. 
Um, generally speaking, not 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 the issue of having a problem with that. Well, no, it's just interesting that obviously the question was more about how do you prevent it, not how do you cure it. So yeah. that was the okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah prevented by keeping it wet and, and healthy. And you've given these wines quite uh, strong Afrikaans names, which you yeah. mentioned. Maybe, maybe talk us through that. So the Granitstein. So Granitstein, um, yeah, that just re- is a kind of a literal description for 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 that vineyard. There's really a, a, a big mother rock granite uh, um, uh, that that comes out of the hill there, and you can see it at uh, portions where it's protruding. Uh, these granite rocks. So Afrikaans uh, is just uh, granite, it means granite. And Stian uh, uh, is also, it's, it's, it has two meanings. So the first meaning just literally rock or stone, basically granite stone. So I was referring to that vineyard as the place where the granite stones is. But Stian also in Afrikaans means Shinnan, uh, or that's the old name for, for Shinnan Blanc back in the day. And uh, yeah, just referring to the Stian. So granite Stian, just granite Shinnan. Very cool. And Helder Filet? And Halderfale, um, so that area uh, of Sinai Hill, uh, my father also had another name for it, uh, looking over the hill or standing on top of Sinai Hill and you look towards the Halderberg and the whole Fals Bay area, uh, you have this really amazing sight of the whole Halderberg Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Afrikaans, uh, it's just shortened as Halder Valley instead of Halderberg. We can't put Halderberg in the label because then obviously Savas won't accept it. Okay. Uh, as it's not a ward or demarcation uh, region on its own. It's not a single vineyard, and uh, yeah, the, yeah, that, no, that's it's a single vineyard. But we're still not no, allowed it, to. Is it, yeah, a, is yeah. it a registered single vineyard? Yeah, from 2020 okay. vintage it is. So the 2019 is oh, okay. not yet, but 2020 is a registered single vineyard. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And then um, the Phoenix. So Phoenix, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, the, if you pronounce it, it's probably the same as the English word Phoenix, mm. <laughs> which is P, I think it's P-H-O-E-N-I-X. Yes. Uh, but uh, taking a Scandinavian or Afrikaans or Flemish version of it, um, it's it's spelled F-E with a, a, a cute, acute sign, uh, uh, N-I-K-S. Uh, so Phoenix, uh, and that's just referring a, a little bit to um, you know, rising from the ashes. So for, for these vines, uh, you know, rising from the dead, basically. Uh, when I got to this vineyard, my cousin actually wanted to rip it out. Um, and uh, um, and he said, you know, it's not bearing enough fruit. And uh, I said, well, please, I like the taste of the grapes. Let me try and get in here and, and make something special and I'll pay you enough for it. Yeah, so I'm taking that old vineyard now as well. But uh, yeah, so I refer to that vineyard as Phoenix. But also, again, replaying on words with Pinotage, kind of uh, the rebirth of Pinotage in a way, rising from its bad reputation. I think if we make it uh, um, and, and focus more on its primary terroir characters, Pinotage can actually be a lovely wine. And Swansong. Yeah, this is a bit of a story to it. Uh, yeah. So Swansong, um, the, the first Syrah vineyard that I, that I worked with was on the farm Aldersicht next to next to the winery road. Uh, also a lovely old SH99 vineyard, 2017 vintage Syrah from mine uh, was then called Swanesang because uh, later that year, just after the 2017 vintage, uh, the farmer pulled out this, this Syrah vineyard. Almost didn't even let us know, you know, this vineyard is going to get pulled out. And, you know, it was devastating for us. I wanted to to keep homage of the, the feel of when a, a vineyard gets ripped out and you had a chance to really make the last wine from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, pro- process is called swan song, you know, as, as, you know I, th- I think the same word exists in English, you know, as the swan song, you know, the last performance. And, and that vineyard played a big role back in the day in my dad's era as well. And I love that Syrah vineyard. 
Um, so this is just a, a tribute to, you know, that swan-a-song moment for some of these bush vines in the area that got ripped out by different farmers with different perspectives uh, that's moved into the area. Yeah, obviously then the next vineyard or the vineyard that I work with now is not going anywhere at the moment and uh, I really have a good relationship with the farmer and uh, exciting about this vineyard or excited and uh, really love working with it. Uh, but I just felt the, the name I'm going to keep to actually always just remember this Swana song moment for these vineyards. It's kind of a tribute that will stay forever for, with, with the Syrah. No, very um, cool. And it probably is a bit of a memento mori moment I mean, in terms of you, you have to be constantly aware that they aren't your vineyards and, you know, the, the farmer no, can make a decision one day. To, yeah, I mean, they, they, they can make a decision one day if, you know, if times get tough or if things change drastically that, you know, yeah. things, things can change quickly. Is probably it's a probably a, a good thing to keep that in mind. Yeah, you know, it's always part of our subconscious as you know, working with small negotiations. But uh, uh, we we try to always uh, be positive about it and 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 work in a certain way that this is not the situation. So we we really build up a good relationship and uh, and, and and communicate. Uh, communication is key, and we, as soon as you lose that and passion uh, or mutual passion, then then you're in trouble probably. Okay, last wine uh, of the single vineyard, the top wines, is the new wine from um, the Glencora, the uh, Grenache Blanc. Yeah, very exciting uh, um, vineyard up in the Glencora. Oh, I say up, it's more, you know, east. Uh, So... So now we're talking uh, Klein Karua, the east part of the Klein Karua, just uh, between the rest on your way to Willowmore. So that's kind of on the edge uh, to towards the, the Klein Karua's border, uh, just below the Swartberg and then on the farm called Kamanasi Blue. Uh, and this is uh, where the Kamanasi Blue Nature Reserve is, uh, is as well. So mainly this guy, uh, it's on a farm from a guy from Pretoria, which is in the construction industry, and he has this game farm uh, um, there in the Klein Karua. And I met him in Pretoria, and uh, we spoke a little bit about, about vineyards. And he said he had this farm there on these soils, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was immediately like, you know, you know, I'd love to go visit and, and have a look there one day. And he said, well, please, you know, he's got a farm manager there that is passionate about farming, and there's some other fruits and game farming there, but he's not really too much connected about viticulture. As, as most farmers in that area, you know, it's, it's kind of... Uh, um, Viticulture is like hieroglyphs in that region. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just a foreign language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I I went up to the farm in 2018 for the first time. Yeah, I just immediately fell. Well, not immediately. It came over long years that I've always loved the Klein Karua and always wanted to experience the the Tirwa through making wine from from the scenes there and almost tasting the geology of the Klein Karua, which is... Just beautiful schist landscapes and 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 uh, arid terroir and kind of rugged area, but as like in Pura, you get finesse uh, through rugged terrain sometimes, um, and and some some elegance and purity that comes with uh, these types of soils and conditions. Um, and uh, through my time in Prerat, I was inspired to 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 chase down swirls like these and, and areas like these a bit more. Uh, can I say with a bit more passion? And hence, I also planted some some vines in the Karua, but my vines aren't bearing yet, and the baboons took half of it, and the kudus the other half. Uh, but luckily, found this guy's vineyard, Grenache Blanc, planted there between the Schist Hills with some shale uh, derived soils as well. And it's a young vineyard, planted 2009. Uh, so, but working in these soils, it just creates this 
excellent uh, kind of character that's quite unique for me in, in that Grenache Blanc. Um, and I want to uh, portray that again. Uh, thought I'm going to make it part of the Sinai, uh, Signs of Sinai range. Um, and yeah, focusing as a single vineyard and, and portraying a Grenache Blanc. Cool. So just so if people don't know where De Rust is, it's out near um, Oetzeren? Oh, yeah, I, can, so I can never say that properly. How do I say that properly? Oh, Okay. Yeah. There's a, yeah, no, there's no, a weird D and some. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's about five uh, hours uh, drive east from Cape Town and that's north about of six hours. Yeah. Six hours drive east for me from from the Alabang. Yeah. Okay. So um, and then yeah, you know, on the N2, then just after Mossel Bay, you you cut through uh, the Robinson Pass over into Oetzeren. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're over the Otaniqua Mountains. Um, yes. And now you're between the Otaniqua Mountains and the Swartberg Mountains. Uh, at Oetzwering, you take a right, you know, again, east. <laughs> yeah. And that's another 40 minutes, 40 to 50 minute drive, you know, east from Oetzwering. So that's that's also, I mean, that's and that's near Karlitzdorp as well. So that's another sort of fortified, an area that um, has uh, a, a lot of fortified uh, traditions. Yeah, so Karlitzdorp is, you know, to the west of Oetzwering, quite mm. quite far uh, uh, back. So that's that's also kind of a different valley. A lot okay. of sandstone, fertile swells as well up there. You know, it's a bit more than an hour east from from Karlitzdorp. Okay. Uh, where 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 this this vineyard is situated, so it's quite quite a, a bit away. But but you know, it's definitely the uh, or the thing around there. Uh, you know, the closest vineyards really are you know towards the Congo area of Oetzwering. Uh, most of those vineyards are made for sweet wines, you know, sweet muscadels and uh, jerapicos and, and those styles of wines that go through a cooperative winery there like Kangu or even going to Ladysmith. But a lot of these grapes actually went into Karlitzdorp to uh, wineries like the Kranz or, or, or those that help process some of it uh, or bought in some of it on, on bigger amounts. Okay. Uh, but but the, the the goal for for the farm of or the owner of this farm is not really to you know to have heaps amount of vineyards. He he's, he's actually just a, a game farm owner and <laughs> happens to have these uh, five to six hectares of vineyards uh, that he really love to to plant there. Um, mm-hmm. Today I'm not sure who actually the viticulturist was. Uh, I'm trying to still find out to help the the farm manager plant it there, but. Uh, but they certainly made the right cultivar choices. Well, that's good. That's good news. Um, and talk yeah. to us about what um, the wine that, that's uh, results from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, taking uh, Grenache Blanc again, uh, it's a difficult wine to focus on acidity, but uh, you try, you know, your best. Uh, working with a schist-derived soil, it helps for me to to have uh, the wine come out with a lower pH. Uh, I'm not going into the full chemistry. Uh, uh, evidence behind it, but it is uh, you know, for me a kind of uh, a muddled belief that uh, a schist swell can can really keep uh, or, or help maintain a lower pH. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, this this is definitely apparent in this Grenache Blanc as well. That's uh, a big thing for me uh, to have uh, um, this finesse from this rugged territory again. So when I harvest it, uh, take it into the winery, um, you know, harvest early in the morning there in the Karua. Uh, drive back through Mosul Bay, you know, as 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 fast as possible along the ocean, and then get back to the winery by midday and start processing the grapes. Uh, so same story as I do with Granitstian. Uh, again, liking like to leach out a little bit of the terroir from the skin and something unique and authentic from that vineyard. So keep keep it on the skins for about three nights, um, and then so it's destemmed. 
mm-hmm. uh, and then pressed uh, to ferment further in barrel. Um, a basket press fermented in barrel, kept on the lease uh, for 10 months, um, and then bottled, unfiltered, unfined, and uh, really, uh, for me, captures the, the kind of elegance and uh, of the of the plan career in, uh, in a certain way. Maybe just quickly chat about the Atlanticas uh, while we're here. Yeah, so Atlanticas um, spawned out from from that pinotage veneer that's going to get ripped out or was going to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I offered to to the farm owner, you know, I'll, I'll easily take the, the whole vignette. I, I love the fruit. I really like working with pinotage on that sandier types of soils. But uh, so Phoenix is on the, the, the top portion of, of this vignette, which is a bit more on a sandy a looser type of soil where towards the, the bottom corner of this pinotage vignette there's a bit more loaminess in the soils the growth is a bit more there's more leaves it's a bit more lush growth a bit more bigger I said well that, that portion I'll uh, I'll take all of the grapes from that area as well at the time obviously I, I don't have the facility to to grow Phoenix uh, as a whole you know as a, as, as a meticulous single vignette production uh, with, with all of those grapes at once uh, but uh, um I thought that I'm going to get the grapes, really uh, uh, focus on the raw uh, uh, character of pinotage from that area, so not putting it into barrel, fermented all, a whole bunch of fermentation as well. Uh, yep. But then that's uh, only about the 30% portion which goes through uh, uh, semi-carbonic. The rest is then a whole bunch uh, stomped again, you know, stems intact as I did with others. And, you know, just the um, easy uh, uh, um, approach to pinotage from that area, aged in tank, uh, not in barrel, um, and then also bottled earlier. So this is bottled also again in September and just uh, trying to uh, bring out raw pinotage and uh, a certain uh, aspect from, from that region as well. No, very uh, cool. You know, it's just a, a really nice table red wine in the end, but still made without uh, sulfur additions or any other additions and yep. unfiltered and fine. And priced, you know, very reasonably, so you can, you know, you can drink it on a Tuesday and a Wednesday evening and not feel like, uh, you know, you can just you can just open it and, and not feel bad. Exactly. Uh, my wife and I, you know, that's the as you said, Tuesdays, <laughs> Thursdays, or Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and three nights a week, uh, you can open a bottle and it's not, uh, you know, not going to feel too bad that you you, mm. you open something uh, that you wanted to keep for for three four years. Yeah, and it didn't and it didn't break the bank. Just before I let exactly. you go, maybe chat to me about maybe some other producers that you're uh, that you're excited by at the moment. Um, so if someone goes and buys all of your wines and there's no more, more to buy, what other wines should they look out for? Are you talking about uh, inspirational wines for me, or wines that in South Africa, you know, that I feel excited about? Probably South African wines. That um, so, just a little. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, I think uh, for for me, also over the years, becoming friends with uh, guys like Jurgen Huis, you know, speaking a little bit to Craig Hawkins over the years. Uh, he's been uh, his wines are amazing. Uh, really like how he brings terroir into into to his wines as well. Yeah, so Interlego wines uh, probably taste longer. Uh, like the wines from from Janine and Mick, uh, Craven wines, uh, good to go to. Um, and then also uh, Stompy uh, at his year our signature series wines. So I really find uh, capturing some terroir and aspects there as well decent stuff and uh, Lucas uh, in the Stellenbosch area also making some great wines I love what uh, Chris Allight's doing with, with Shannon uh, so always uh, some good uh, Shannons from him we have a few a few exciting wines <laughs> in the area awesome alright well thank you for your time
Bernard, you better yeah, get back to your son. He looks, he, he, he sounds like he's very upset that you're uh, not uh, paying him any attention. Yeah, no, he's busy. So he wants to go uh, run around outside, but it's raining. So he's even more okay. frustrated. Pleasure, certainly mine. And thank you for having me on your show, David. No, cheers, man. Thanks for your time and, uh, and stay strong and we'll, uh, we'll share a bottle soon. Awesome, man. Thanks.